Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. I had originally thought that three episodes would cover just about all there was to say about the history of logging in Algonquin Park. I realized, though, when I went back over my notes that I'd missed a few juicy tidbits that I still wanted to share, and a few more shanty songs that I thought needed a hearing. In addition, I realized that another missing link was to share something about the last river run that Ron Corbett wrote so eloquently about in 2008 in his book One Last River Run. So you'll have to bear with me as this episode is a bit more of a hodgepodge of different things. Hopefully you'll find it fun and interesting. To start things off, here's a shanty song called Hogan's Lake, which is sung by O.J. Abbott and is about the cutting of square timber trees. I found it on a website called Internet Archive amongst a collection of Ontario lumbering shanty songs that was posted there in 2012. Oh, come all you brisk young fellows that assemble here tonight. Assist my bold endeavors while I those few lines I write. It's of a gang of shanty boys, I mean to let you know. They went up for Thomas Lahr and to storm frost and snow. Those upon the Black River at a place called Hogan's Lake. Those able-bodied fellows went square timber for to make. The echo of their axes rung from shore to shore. The lofty pine they fell so fast like cannons they did roar. There was two gang of scorers, their names I do not mind. They ranged the mountains o'er and o'er, their winter's work to find. They tossed the pine both right and left, the blocks and slippers flew. They scared the wild moose from their yards, likewise the caribou. Our hewers, they, they were tasty and they ground their axes fair. They aimed their blow so neatly, I am sure they split a hair. They followed up the scorers who were not left behind. To do good work, I really think all hands are well inclined. Tom Hogan was our foreman's name, and very well he knew how to conduct his business and what shanty boy should do. He knew when timber was well made, when teams they had good loads. How to lay it up on the swamp, and out no man should cut the roads. At four o'clock in the morning, the teamsters would awake. They'd go out and feed their horses, then their breakfast they would take. Turn out, me boys, the foreman cries, when each horse is on the road. You must away before it's day, those teams for to unload. If you were in the shanty when they came in at night, to see them dance, to hear them sing, it would your heart delight. Some asked for patriotic songs, some for love songs they'd call. Fitzsimmons sung about the girdle that wore the waterfall. One of the things I found to be most interesting about shanty life was the role of the cook. The cook's job was seven days a week, early and late, so no one minded if they were a bit temperamental. The cook's general disposition, cooking ability, and temper exerted a great influence on the general peace and comfort of the shanty. To enjoy oneself and have some fair measure of comfort, the logger had to make sure that they stayed on the right side of the cook. Cooks could make or break a camp. Lumbermen burned tremendous amounts of energy, so they thought about food, dreamed about food, talked about food all the time. 
Many cooks viewed themselves as artists who were facing critical audiences twice a day. Either way, when you were a cook, you had to be the boss. As king, cooks had a voice in every department of the internal economy of the shanty. Everything from where you were to sleep, what corner you were to store your bag, to what peg was yours to hang your socks, moccasins, or clothes on. Cooks were also often the oracle of the establishment, and their opinion consulted by everyone. What is also interesting that often their ability to make yeast bread came to be the common test of whether a man could claim to be a cook. Sometimes hops were added to prevent the growth of molds and bacteria. According to one old-timer, the key to good bread-making was in the mixing of it, letting it rise, and the panning of it. That's what counted, he said, the handling of the bread. That counts. It's also interesting to note that though popular among trappers, bannock was not common in the shanties. I suppose it's because it was, or is, hard to make in large quantities. The easiest way was to open up the flour bag, make a little impression, toss in half a cup of water or so, with a little salt or baking soda if you had it, roll it all up, knead it a few times, and toss it into a hot frying pan of bacon fat. That still works well on canoe trips today. Sundays were the only day that shantymen had off. Most would sleep. Others might go hunting for partridge or other small game, or set up a few traps for beavers. Others mended their clothes or fixed their tools. There was nothing to read and little or no religious instruction. Everyone had to wash their own clothes outdoors. But a lot gave up and just put one layer on over another. In Don McKay's book, Lumberjacks, he recounted one story of one fellow who ended up in the hospital. There, the nurses found seven shirt collars around his neck. Few of the men brushed their teeth, and apparently chewing tobacco was supposed to help. Everyone slept with their clothes on, and their coats were only used as pillows. Many a foreman said you likely weren't working hard enough if you needed to wear a coat during the day. Everyone had his or her own remedies for illnesses that upon occasion appeared. Here are some of the most exotic ones. If you had colic or a stomach pain, you'd drink some gunpowder in boiling water. If you cut yourself with an axe, you put gum from the fir tree in the cut, and you'd singe it three times with a flame, blowing on it each time, and in so doing, the cut would heal quickly. If you got frostbite, the common treatment was a bath of lye from wood ashes mixed with a handful of salt. For general indisposition, popular remedies included aspen bark in boiling water, red spruce gum and brandy, or boiled beaver kidney. Lumberjacks also had some funny superstitions. Never grind your axe on Sunday. You might cut yourself on Monday. Never sleep with your head down river on a river drive. It was bad luck and meant a man would drown. Watch out for gray, uncrested Canada jays, as they were really the ghosts of dead lumberjacks. One story had a lumberjack from New Brunswick who caught a Canada jay and pulled all its feathers out and let it go. It, of course, froze to death. To no one's surprise, the next morning, the guy awoke with his head completely bald. Evenings involved smoking pipes, sharpening axes, and sometimes playing cards or checkers, storytelling, or occasionally wrestling, mending moccasins, or fixing rents and clothing. There were no radios in those days, but in some camps listening to the music played by a fiddle, accordion, or mouth organ player provided good entertainment, especially on Saturday nights. It was not unknown for a crusty old foreman to hire a good singer or fiddler, even if he was not much of a logger. 
Half of the men would tie flower sacks around their waists or handkerchiefs around their arms to show they were dancing the ladies' part. Step dancing, square dancing, and any kind of dancing, they did it all. Step dancing involved keeping the body straight, head thrown back, arms folded, upper body stiff on the feet, skittering to the beat of the tune. On my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, I've posted some photographs from Don McKay's book that show drawings of some of these dancers. Many camps had games that they would play, especially on greenhorns. One game involved getting the greenhorns, newcomers in the bush, to sit on the floor as if they were in a pointer boat with imaginary oars. They were then supposed to be rowing the boat. Others would come along with a pail of water and slosh it on the floor between the rowers' legs and shout, Beware of the waves! Another game involved two men sitting on the floor facing each other with their legs spread apart. The greenhorn was given a large hunting knife. A large pool of water was poured on the floor between the two. The bet was that the man without the knife could splash the water on the man with the knife before he would be stabbed. When the go signal came, the man without the knife would grab the greenhorn by the ankles and pull him through the puddle of water. Another annual joke was played for newcomers who were often nervous about the bears, wolves, and other wild animals that they had been told inhabited the area. Instigated usually by the older loggers, events began with old-timers on returning from work in the dark would start to whisper comments about having gotten a glimpse of some especially mysterious animal. Each night for a while, a different person would report having seen this animal, which appeared to be unlike any the old woodsman had ever encountered before. It was allegedly large and seemed to have eyes like large balls of fire. The newcomers would by this time be afraid to go out to the stable after dark. Then, on an agreed-upon night, immediately after supper, the crew gathered about the fire and would start sharing all kinds of hair-raising yarns. They would then circle back to talking more about this mysterious animal that many had supposedly encountered. The young, initiated members took it all in with wide-open mouths and protruding eyes. At this stage of the game, the cook would get up and pile a lot of green wood on the fire, fairly smothering it. Then, all at once, at a prearranged moment, one of the group would jump up quickly and, with a startled look directed upwards towards the smokestack, hiss, listen. Sure enough, there'd be a queer noise on the roof near the smokestack. Everyone in the room would become excited and jump to their feet as the racket grew worse. Then, in an instant, they would all behold a large, dark, furry creature with huge eyes that would tumble from the chimney and fall with a thump at their feet. By that time, the newcomers would be scattered in all directions, heading for the door. Stories had it that in one case, a young chap ran all the way home and never came back. The instigators of this trick always went to great pains to get a good bull hide in which the leg bones were left to give support. The body was stuffed with straw inside of barrel staves. Glass eyes finished off the lifelike look. It usually took about three men to get it on the roof and down the smokestack at the crucial moment, but all felt it was well worth it, and most of the novices later would admit that it was a very good joke. So to close our stories of shanty life, here's another final lumber shanty song. It's called Harry Dunn and is sung by Martin Sullivan. There's many the poor Canadian boy leaves home and friends so dear. 
and longing for excitement to Michigan did steer. I once knew a charming lad, his name was Harry Dunn. His father was a farmer in the county of Lodon. He'd all the wealth he could possess and land of high estate. He only wanted to have a time in the woods of Michigan. And on the morning he left his home, his mother to him did say, Now Harry dear, take my advice, and on the farm do stay. You leave your kind old mother, likewise your sisters three. And something seemed to tell me, no more your face I'll see. He went into the city and he hurried with lumbering king. He strayed away and took his course to the woods of Pennsylvania. He worked away for three long months, of times he would ride home, saying the winter will soon be over and then I will go down. He rose one morning from his bunk, his face that wore no smile. He called his comrade out of doors, whose name was Charlie Lyle. Saying, Charlie, dear, I had a dream that fills my heart with woe. I fear there's something wrong at home, and there I better go. His comrade only laughed at him, which pleased him for a time. Saying, Charlie, dear, come, let us go. It's time to fall the pine. They worked away till one o'clock that very afternoon. When a hanging limb fell down on him and sealed his faithful dunes, his comrades gathered all round him to pull the limb away, saying, Charlie, dear, I'm dying, and my time has came right soon. Now, Charlie, dear, go down with me and take my body home, and tell my kind old mother what caused me far to roam. His poor old aged mother, she fell down like a stone. They raised her up, but her heart was broke when her Harry was brought home. His poor old aged father, he lingered for a while, but never after on this earth was ever seen to smile. In less than three weeks after, they buried that good old man. So then you see, a deathly curse lies over Michigan. As mentioned in a previous podcast, the first river raft down the Ottawa River to Quebec City took place in 1806. Philemon Wright, his son Tiberius, and a few other men were the first to shuttle a raft composed of 20 or so square timbers and a bunch of barrel staves down the Ottawa River to the St. Lawrence, and from there on to Quebec City. The last river run was in 1908 when J.R. Booth assembled a raft that was composed of 150 cribs working a timber limit off of the Coulomb River. One of the main reasons that 1908 was the last year was because that year plans were in place to build a hydroelectric dam at Chaudière Falls. When completed, it was expected and did raise the river's water level by 10 feet behind the falls, making the timber slide that Ruggles Wright, one of Philemon's sons, obsolete and impossible to move a raft past Ottawa. In the newspapers, it was reported that crowds came out along the river in Ottawa, Hawkesbury, Point Fortune, Montreal, and Quebec, and all along the St. Lawrence River. 
As Ron Corbett reported, thousands of people who'd grown up with the raftsmen and the annual river run to Quebec came to see the last from the Ottawa Valley. Fast forward nearly a hundred years, it was the spring of 2008, and Ron Corbett, a journalist for the Ottawa Sun, had this great idea for a summer series. It had been over a hundred years since the last time a commercial raft of square timber cribs had made their way down the Ottawa River. Was there anyone around who knew or could figure out how to actually construct one? How much wood would it take? How much would it cost? And if it were built, would it float? What kind of red tape would have to be overcome in order to sail or pole it down the river? And who would do the approving? It was, of course, a crazy idea, an absolutely crazy idea. But Ron was a successful cultivator of ideas and found what eventually became very sympathetic ears in a collection of adventurers, including Dave Lemke from the Canadian Forestry Association. Dave, in turn, interested cousins John and Dana Shaw from Herb Shaw and Sons from Pembroke, who possibly had the wood. They, in turn, interested Willie, and Willie and Patty O'Brien from Eakinville were the last full-time Teamster family who still worked the bush with horses in eastern Ontario. Greg Miller, a baker-turned-miller from Deep River who, in turn, knew how to square the logs with an old-style bandsaw, was recruited to tool the logs. And Tom Stevenson, an expert forester, was arm-twisted into figuring out how to build the thing. Even after the main cutting, it took Stevenson and two Algonquin college students, Trevor Slack and Isaac McEachin, three days to peel the rest of the bark off of the sticks and to make sure that 30 logs were perfectly squared, scraped using metal scrapers, and beveled at each end. Instead of using horses, a loader with a mechanical arm was used to rotate the square timber for these final cuts. According to details found in a book by Charlotte Witten, a former mayor of Ottawa called A Hundred Years of Felling, The Lumber Saga of Ottawa, 1842-1942, each stick had to be no more than 32 feet in length, and when laid parallel, the collective couldn't be wider than 28 feet. So in June 2008, a small group of dreamers gathered at Shaw's hydropole yard to figure out how to build a traditional square timber river raft. It turns out that Witten's book also provided drawings and a pretty decent description of how a raft was built. One of the secrets was in using pins and cross pieces of wood called traverses instead of nails, screws, glue, or rope. Using this work as a guide, Tom Stevenson spent several hours directing a loader with a mechanical arm to place various logs in various positions. Eventually, he decided that 20 of the sticks were to be used for the base and three were to be half split and used as the traverses. On top of them, laid perpendicular, were four of the four and a half foot in diameter King's logs. It turns out the British Crown passed a law in the 1800s which said that any log wider than 17 inches in diameter was reserved for the British Navy. The penalty was death for sneaking such a log somewhere else say, for example, to a sawmill in the United States. This was the same penalty as for poaching in the King's Forest in England. In order to hold the raft all together and using Witten's diagrams as a guide, Stevenson designed and carved a series of ironwood pins that were set in holes through the traverses and the bottom logs. It turns out the weight of the King's logs and their placement between the protruding pins helped keep the whole thing together. The logs in the middle rolled free, which gave the entire entity the flexibility to go down rapids and chutes without cracking up. 
as Stevenson said at the time, the outside structure keeps it all in place, just the pins and the traverses. That's what makes it work. It's sort of like a log boom, the wood cribbed together in the middle. That's the word Philemon must have used, which is likely why people started to call them cribs. Stevenson then designed and carved the sweeps, which were 10-foot oars that would be used for both steering and rowing. At that moment, as the initial assembly was underway, an odd thing started to happen. People started to come by to take a look at what was going on. At first, they were from around Pembroke, but then from all over the place, including Mattawa, Golden Lake, and Eganville. As Corbett noted, some would walk across the base of the raft and start to laugh. Others would run their hands down the smoothly shaved timber. Most said they were just passing through and thought they would just swing by. Yeah, right, a 300-mile round trip, detour on the way to the grocery store. I don't think so. Something strange was going on. The raft in the pole yard was disassembled, with the logs numbered so it would be easy to put back together at the Castleford Wharf on the shores of the Bonisher River, where the plan was to launch the trip to Ottawa. The Shaws figured that the whole thing weighed close to 30 tons. Like in Pembroke, on the morning of June 23, 2008, all kinds of people showed up to watch the raft reassembly, having read a story in the Ottawa Sun that morning. Amazingly, it only took two hours to put the raft back together on the water. Gear was loaded, a small tarp held up with ironwood poles cut by Stevenson was set up, coolers full of food and the sweep oars were placed in their locks. As the crew rowed away from the wharf, it soon became clear there was no current. Over the decades since 1908, all kinds of dams had been built, leaving just about every part of the river flat and calm. Even on the wide stretch of the Ottawa River, known as Chats Lake on maps, the current was virtually non-existent. Luckily, Dave Lemke from the Canadian Forestry Association had found Peter and Barbara Houghton, who owned a 50s vintage sweep boat that had once been used to move log booms by the Gillies Lumber Company in days past. As the sweep boat towed the raft and after the excitement of the initial launch had subsided, the rafters started eyeing the floor of the raft and ruminating in silence as to whether or not the raft would hold together if any sort of wake made an appearance. After a while, most began to relax and began to look around at the scenery that likely hadn't much changed since the days that Samuel de Champlain had passed through. At the Brayside Wharf, where the plan was to spend the first night, Corbett was amazed to find not just two television trucks from Ottawa complete with reporters and microphones and camera crews, but a full parking lot of people. The mayor of McNabb Brayside, Mary Campbell, was there and proceeded to read a proclamation thanking the Shaws for building the first square timbered crip in a hundred years, and how happy everyone in the township was to see one on the river again. The raft was then disassembled again and trucked past Arnprior, around the Chats Falls Dam, at Fitzroy Harbor to Quion, Quebec. At that point, the Shaws had spent close to $30,000, so Corbett was tasked with going back to Ottawa and finding a sponsor. This turned out not to be so easy, mostly because the normal go-to channels couldn't possibly make a decision fast enough. Corbett settled on Tony Sharasebi, the owner of Minute Car Wash on Catherine Street in Ottawa. The vignette of how Corbett convinced Tony to join in the fun is a classic and another example of something really different that was happening here. 
Here's what Corbett said happened. So what's up, Tony said as he sat down in his office, which was a room that looked more like the waiting room at a Canadian tire store garage. I told him about the raft. Then about J.R. Booth, Philemon Wright, and finally these crazy people in Pembroke who'd built an exact replica of a square timber raft and now wanted to bring it to Ottawa. They're looking for sponsors, I said. I thought of you. It's a raft? That's right. Like Huck Finn? Well, a little more than that, I said, and took some photos out of a folder. I showed him the raft as it sat in the pole yard earlier in the week, almost complete except for the sweeps. Then I showed him archive photos. Rafts tied up below the Parliament buildings, a solitary raft making its way down a treacherous set of rapids. This is how they used to get the wood to market, he says? That's right, I said. I had no idea. I show him more photos. Tom Stevenson planing the bark off a square timber. Willie O'Brien taking down a tree in a forest near Deep River. Another archive shot of rafts being built in a lumber camp somewhere. Tony started to laugh. Man, this is all new to me. It looks crazy. It is crazy. Do you want to be part of it? He keeps laughing as he opens a drawer in his desk and takes out a checkbook. What am I actually sponsoring? We're not sure. What do I get for sponsoring the raft? We're not sure about that either. The laughter now can be heard out in the car wash. All right. How's this one? Who do I make the check out to? God loves history buffs. We're on our way, Corbett said. Though true, I think it was more than just being a history buff. Building this raft was affecting people in some very interesting ways. It's just so simple. It's beautifully simple. That's what Mario Cote, a seasonal fruit picker, said, who lives just outside the village of Quenon and came to see the raft. Cote was one of the dozen people who showed up on June 24, Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day in 2008. Some had seen the story about it on television. Others just heard about it through the grapevine. Whatever way, the people kept coming and coming and coming. Corbett was expected to host a live radio show from the raft that night at Dunrobin, the next stop on their great adventure. So when Carl Trudeau showed up, who was a former performer with the Keon Old Time Fiddlers Club, whose father had learned to fiddle in the bush camps and taught him, Ron invited him to participate in the live show along with a fellow musician, Dennis Bennett, who was a guitar player, and Paulette, the sweep boat operator, who turned out to be a step dance teacher and also played a little fiddle. The next day, the crew continued on cruising down the Ottawa River with many a boat honking their horns as they went by and some even stopping to check out the raft. Just after 5 p.m., the rafters manned the sweeps and cruised in and tied up at Mike McCann's waterfront home. Mike was a friend of the Shaw's, and as at previous stops, the crowds were amazing. In no time, the equipment was set up for the live radio show on the raft, and the crowd continued to grow. Amazingly, by 8 p.m., they were all ready to go, and the show went off without an incident, except one point where the wake from a boat on the river kicked up a wake that flowed over the raft. Luckily, it didn't short-circuit anything, thank goodness. Even the fiddler, guitar, and step-dancing trio were a hit, and special requests from callers to the Ottawa studio resulted in an impromptu Log Driver's Waltz rendition. Now, until I started researching this podcast, I had no idea what the Log Driver's Waltz was. However, a search through YouTube revealed that the song by Wade Hemsworth was quite famous. 
It began with an animated short film produced by the Canada's National Film Board in 1979. And in 2017, the Toronto Symphony recorded a version sung by singer Heather Pambrick and another by the Prairie Dog Fiddlers and even also the Wakami Whalers who play at the annual Loggers Day event every summer. I recommend that everybody stop and take a quick side trip to YouTube and look at all of these versions. It's a kick. Now, my voice isn't as good as it once was, but you'll get the drift of the tune. My favorite verse and the chorus are as follows. To please both my parents, I've had to give way and dance with the doctors and merchants and lawyers. Their manners are fine, but their feet are of clay, for there's none with the style of a log driver. For he goes burling down, down the white water. That's where the log driver learns to step lightly, burling down, down the white water. A log driver's waltz pleases girls completely. The next day was the last day on the water with the plan to arrive in Ottawa that afternoon. It was now June 27, 2008. After a few days on the raft, everyone started telling stories, but nothing could beat Ron's story of how it came to pass that their final resting spot was going to be at the Canadian Museum of Civilization. Ron had spent days calling every wharf-like spot in the area to no avail, and was about to give up when, through a complete miracle, he was routed to Jasmine Mingay, who was then the Canadian Museum of Civilization's head of communications. Like so many others, Yasmin fell in love with the raft and moved mountains to arrange for it to be set up at the waterfall court near the river and be on display for a week that ran over that year's Canada Day weekend. At the crew's final river stop at the Nepean Sailing Club, an elderly woman came up to the crew and asked where on earth they had been storing the raft for the last hundred years. When told that it had just been built, she at first didn't believe it. Then she inquired as to where they were able to get such large logs. When told there were a few to be found in Alice Township outside of Pembroke, she was amazed. At the waterfall court, the view was spectacular. The Parliament building shone in the background, and the assembled raft looked huge in that locale, much larger than it appeared in Shaw's pole yard where Tom Stevenson had been experimenting just a few weeks previously. Over the course of the Canada Day weekend, thousands of people came by to see it. As Ron wrote, everyone seemed delighted to find a raft in their midst. And for that day, on that raft, you would have been hard-pressed to find a single argument or discover people who didn't get along. As raft expert Mark Twain said, what you want on a raft, above all things, is for everybody to be satisfied and feel right and kind toward the others. In the end, as Ron wrote, I don't think it was love of history that made people fall in love with the raft, although that was part of it. Nor was it just an offbeat story that momentarily caught their attention. I think that in that raft, people saw the something more that they often look for in life. The thing that will take them from this place to the next. A symbol? Sure, you could say it was a symbol of the country. The heyday of logging in the Ottawa Valley maybe even the Ottawa River. But to be honest, I think most people saw it for exactly what it was, a 30-ton square timber raft. No symbols needed. 
But when they saw it, something clicked inside. A memory was stirred, an emotion rediscovered. You looked at the thing and you started to dream, started to think about what else in life was possible, what journey you could take next. I saw too many people with smiles on their faces after seeing the raft to believe that there was nothing personal in all this. In that raft, people saw a bit of themselves, saw the best parts, the crazy, dreaming, let's give it a try parts, the parts that have always produced something memorable and grand in the world. I hope you've enjoyed this last collection of odds and sods about the history of logging in the Ottawa Valley and Algonquin Park. As mentioned in previous episodes, I've posted a massive collection of photos I've accumulated on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Again, I'd like to give a very special shout out to Roderick Mackay and to Donald McKay for all their work on this topic, and of course, Ron Corbett. All kinds of books can be found at the Friends of Algonquin bookstore online or in person. As I close this final chapter on logging in Algonquin, here's one more shanty song to liven your day. It's called The Basketong and sung by O.J. Abbott. Oh, it was in the year 1801 When I left my poor Kate all sad and alone Says I to my Kate, sure three months won't be long But it's little I thought of the basketong That lay fall the deedle or I'd fall the dolly we had a good foreman, Kennedy was his name. To speak bad about him, twould be a great shame. For suck holes with him, they had no great sight, for he treated all the men in the shanty alike. Gladly fall the deedle or oh, right fall the dolly. Old Kennedy's Dan, he was jovial and true. He drove a pair of colts, there were about twenty-two. He'd drive fast all day and he'd ne'er be out late, but he thought he'd play hell if Big Jack had a mate. Gladly fall the deedle or oh, I'd fall the dolly. Old Kennedy's Dan, he soon gave them a stroke, for the very next morning the harness he broke. He took them to the shanty and that very fast, and he told the old man to stick them in his eye. Gladly fall the deedle or oh, I'd fall the dolly. We had a good loader, Morissette was his name. To speak bad about him, twould be a great shame. He'd lift like a brute, when the logs would be large, saying up with them boys, now left Joel a barge, gladly fall the deedle or oh, right fall the dolly. Oh, one night we had a great talk about the herrings, the taste of the salt. And the door of our shanty would give you a fright. We were running up and down through the river all night. Gladly fall the deedle or oh, right fall the dolly. I think I'll conclude and finish my song. I hope you won't mind me for keeping you so long. I'll write a letter to Kate saying it will not be long till I'll be returning from the basket tongue. Gladly fall the deedle or oh, right fall the dolly.